Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. I'll be talking with Sandra Beaver about the things that fuel her passion for learning and growth, along with what she used to overcome an extremely difficult period in her life. So without further ado... I'm excited to share this conversation with you today, so get ready to hear more about her remarkable story by starting first with some defining moments from her upbringing. First thing that I want to know is growing up, what experiences helped to shape your life to this day, and what was your childhood like? Sure. And yeah, the funny thing, when this question I found myself like, because it's your childhood, right? It's a really intense period of your life. Like I could write for an hour about this one question. I had a pretty you know, normal, let's call it. I don't know what that means anymore these days. Upbringing, small family, family of four. My parents stayed married until I was 16. So I had one sister. She was about a year older than me. Called ourselves Irish twins from an Irish family. Grew up uh, just outside Boston for the most part. I was born in Northern California, but we moved when I was two. So really I'm pretty much from Boston. My parents had my sister and I very young. They got married right out of high school. And my sister was born when my mom was 19. And I was born when my mom was 20. So I kind of sometimes feel like we all grew up together. And it really shaped the way I think about kind of life and how you become successful and all of these things, because I sort of watched it all happen, right? They were just out of high school, blue collar family. My grandfather on my father's side was a postman. And my grandmother was a cleric at a school. And then on my mother's side, similarly, my grandmother was a cleric at a different school. And my grandfather was a firefighter. So we didn't exactly have this really affluent lifestyle or upbringing. You know, our like 700 square foot house felt pretty nice to us. Mm -hmm. Um, And my parents were both not college educated when we were born. So my dad worked full time and put himself through night school at Northeastern for engineering. And my mom was kind of a full time mother, but we couldn't really afford to live on one income. So she would take these sort of odd jobs that would fit into a schedule when my dad was not at work, which wasn't often between work and school. And she ended up working at a coffee shop and met police officers coming in for coffee. And somehow my mom being my mom, she's, she's now my mom's about five one, you know, she's this peanut of a woman. <laughs> um, and she gets this idea, like she'll go to the police academy. She was going to become a police officer, which she did when I was a kid. So she was an EMT and then she became a cop and that allowed her to work at night while my dad was working during the day because she could take the swing shifts as a police officer. She's she's a funny lady. (laughs) And then, (laughs) you know, as my dad finally finished school, my mom then went to night school. So my mom put herself through school at Boston College and got a business degree. And then she went to Simmons College for graduate school and got a master's degree in communications. And by the time I was in high school, she was the vice president at a bank. And it was sort of out of the norm, right? She managed to work mother's hours and always work when I was a kid but had these kind of grand dreams of having bigger aspirations of herself. And it, she was a huge influence on sort of my view of what's possible as a, as a woman and in the workforce and being able to just kind of dig in and, and make a, a success for herself later in life and when her kids were older. She was just this kind of force of nature is something that we called her because she's this tiny woman, but just really focused and successful. Outside of my kind of immediate family, in terms of what my parents did and stuff, my sister and I, when we grew up, played a lot of sports. My sister was a 
all-American level athlete. So I always sort of paled in comparison to her at athletics, but loved sports. So I played soccer through high school and did track and field. And being on teams at a young age, I also think is a big influencer in terms of how I operate as a human, how I collaborate with others, what I define success as is a big part of that is that I've always been a part of teams and, and how do you win together has been an influencer, I think, in my life. I was never the best athlete in the house, so I was more focused at times on academics. I joined a club in high school called DECA. It's it's referred to as Distributive Education Clubs of America. I honestly have no idea if it still exists, but it's a competitive program around business. So I would write a business plan and then go to these conferences, state conference and national conference, competing on the value and the the competence of my business plan. So as a junior in high school, um, I was at the national level competing with these business plans. And it's not something I think I joined because I was so interested in business, but it was something I joined because the other kids were doing it and you got to leave town to go on these trips, right? So you got to hang out with your friends on the Cape or (laughs) I actually went to the nationals in Missouri of all places, right? So you join it for reasons that teenagers do things together, not because you're really thinking about your future, but it was something thing I was surprisingly good at. It was something I really hadn't thought of or done much time on. And yet it sparked a real interest in me. And what does that mean? What do you know, returns and economics look like? And probably was a big part of why I went to college for business. I ended up getting into a program at University of Massachusetts Amherst called a talent advancement program that was referred to as TAP. And they put you in classes where, you know, you're in a, in a large university, it was 20,000 students or something like that. And you have some classes that had 500 kids in them. And these tap classes, they were your economics classes, your business classes would have 10 and you would get the the best professor and you'd have 10 kids in a class. And so, you know, UMass, as I saw it coming out of high school in Massachusetts was like my safety school, you know, the kids that can't get in anywhere else go to UMass. That was sort of how we viewed it in high school. So I was a bit disappointed with my parents because they were like, basically, you're getting into one of the best programs that you can get into. And as an out-of-state student, it's a really sought-after university. It's a great university. You're getting academic you know, excellence training, and we're going to get some financial assistance that goes along with it. So there was a partial scholarship that went along with going into the program. So it was sort of a no-brainer that this was the right thing to do for my growth and for my you know family. Like, why come out of college in debt from a lesser program than go to UMass? And I loved it. It was a great program, like a little think tank with the other students. And I loved my economics classes and I I really got into it. And so, you know, college was a, a really positive experience in that regard. And it just sort of organically happened. And similarly with the team sports I played in high school, like I, I left high school not wanting to play college sports because I wanted to focus a little bit more on academics and college sports are highly competitive. And I felt like that was going to take up a lot of my time and and effort to try and do that. And I was never great at any of them anyways, but I still was so attuned to go to practice every day, work with your team. And and it was such a big part of my identity. I ended up joining the rugby team my freshman year in college. And I ended up playing rugby for 15 years after that. So I, I, it became again, a big part of something that helped kind of build community, build friends, uh, learn skills that I probably wouldn't have thought of. You know, I also never would have thought of rugby as a sport, to be honest, particularly a women's sport. But I was president of that club through college. And actually, my senior year, I was taken off the starting roster. So I was president of the team, yet not on the starting roster. And learning how to be a leader and not be on the field it's just those kind of skills when you figure them out and in those ways, sort of younger in life, you don't realize until you're quite a bit older, how well they serve you. Yeah, um, like l- Looking back on everything, you're probably like, wow, you know, it's, it's amazing to have these experiences to get me to where I am today. Well, and let, and let me ask you this. I mean, so when you're, you're playing soccer, doing track and field, and you're doing all these other sports, you're also involved in that DECA program. What drove you? Was it the example of your mom, this small scrappy woman who you know, got married at a young age, but then went back to school and made a life for herself? Or were you like self-motivated or goal-oriented on your own? Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, I think, yeah, in high school, I think you're, you know, you're a teenager, right? So a lot of it in high school is is about friends, to be perfectly honest. What are my friends doing? And I want to be where they are and hang out where they are. And what gives me a sense of belonging and a sense of community about belonging to something? 
And so I think that's probably where it started when I was young, right? Having a sister so close in age, like we were a bit competitive and we were a bit in each other's space. And so trying to create your own identity and kind of individuate yourself when you have a, a close sibling who's always in the same space was, was a part of it as well. And then once you start doing those things, you start to figure out that they are really satisfying. You know, you, you start to figure out what you're good at and where you can be successful. And it always feels good to be good at something. And you start to want to do those things more and more, right? So I think it was maybe less about I'm so focused on driving some particular outcome than it was about a kind of organic series of decisions and, and accomplishments that came along the way. I definitely like to succeed. I also like to be busy. Like I bore quite easily, right? So yeah. I'm always kind of looking for something to dig into and to learn and to grow. And I just, I get satisfaction out of that. And, and I don't like to stagnate. I, it just, it, I'll go a little crazy to be honest. <laughs> so, so what got you into the whole field of finance? I mean, I, I see that you went to the University of California and you did a relational database management program, which sounds kind of nerdy. And then you go into finance and I mean, were you, were you a numbers person or was it, you just liked business and you thought, you know, finance would be a good function yeah. to get into. Tell me more about that. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Well, my dad's an engineer. My mother ended up in investor relations of all places and more for her communication skills, I think sometimes than her finance skills, but numbers were something that I was always good at, right? They always came quite naturally to me to do math. Like I just enjoyed it. I was always in the advanced math classes and, and all of those kinds of things. And then applying numbers to practical solutions in life, I think is part of what I learned in DECA, right? It's like taking this idea of how do I create you know, a profit and loss statement and how does a company make money, but then applying it to real people and real life examples. One of the thing I went to nationals for for deck of my business plan was around a shoe store. And it was a shoe store that friends worked at and shopped at. And so you kind of create this connectivity between numbers and life and, and things you can be passionate about and helping people and, and other things. So I kind of developed this passion for finance, um, probably before I even went to college. And it just seemed logical to go into business. And it continued on that path while I was there. I did a lot of summer internships. So my mother at the time was working for a software company and she had a friend in investor relations who worked for Staples, the office product store. And so I spent my college summers uh, interning for him. And I actually, my junior year, left school for probably a month or so to help them with a, which was unsuccessful acquisition attempt of another large office products company. And to do that at 19 years old, right? I had no idea how unique an experience that was, right? I just knew that I liked working with the company and I liked learning and this was fun. And you know, I was setting up investor roadshows when I was you know, in college. And so I got these really unique experiences to, to learn and connect with how finance operates in the, the real world, right, as opposed to an academic exercise around math. When sure. I finished college, I had also because I had, you know, financial assistance, you know, I grew up blue collar family with I didn't want for things, but I certainly didn't have excess in my life. And I went to a state school. And so a lot of my friends had taken out financial assistance and had loans they were paying off. And, you know, I was walking out of college debt free. My parents had fully funded my tuition. And, and I was feeling pretty darn grateful for, for having had that experience and being in the position that I was. And, and I kind of had a couple of paths of like, should I just go back to Staples, right? They were going to offer me a full-time job in their M&A group, believe it or not, as a, an undergraduate student. And yeah, which at the time I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Like, <laughs> the hell was I thinking, right? <laughs> I look back on that and I'm like, wow, I cannot believe they offered me that job. Or do something different, right? And I always kind of had an itch to, to leave Massachusetts. I, I felt like I 
wanted to do something better in the world than make money. Um, I wanted to use my skills in a different way. And, and I ended up in a volunteer program called VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America, that's run by AmeriCorps. So it's college-educated students taking their, um, their skill sets that they've learned and applying them to nonprofit organizations. And so I was placed in a, a company called Axiom, which is a micro-lending organization. So we would give small loans to often immigrants to help them start their own businesses, uh, seamstresses or car washers or anything you can think of that they were trying to do to sustain their families and to be successful. We would fund some of those endeavors. And that to me was taking what I knew and learned and doing good in the world. And I felt like I kind of owed somebody something when I came out of school, like I wanted to give back a bit. It was a humbling experience, to say the least. I was a type A Bostonian who showed up to my first day at work at nonprofit at 8 a.m. and promptly sat in the lobby by myself until 930. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just it's a very different world nonprofit. It operates on a different set of you know timetables and schedules and to be frank it doesn't attract the highest quality talent um, usually so you're kind of working with the the b team and the c team and you know i wanted to be on the a team i'd always been on the a team i'd never known any different and it was interesting to try and figure out how to get people to be at a pace i wanted to be at and to drive the way i wanted to drive in a world where they were kind of you know very much nine to fivers um doing good but you know not going to set the world on fire, not making a ton of money, that kind of thing. In the middle of it, the CEO was fired and she was a woman and she sued the company. So I'm now here 21 years old, living in Southern California because I was actually with Axiom San Diego. So I moved to San Diego for that job and um, I'm being dragged into depositions. Wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not fun, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I was getting paid at this point, I think $700 a month, right? Living in San Diego. So I had to pay rent. I had to have a car and I had to eat. I could afford very little else. I I was renting a room in an apartment. I could barely pay for my gas and car insurance and then live off pasta, right? Who lives on $700 a month in Southern California? That's tough. Yeah. I, I wanted to do good. And I felt good about doing it. I will say a number of times through the course of that year, it's a one year commitment. I was ready to be done. Like I I contemplated leaving, especially when I got dragged into these depositions. I was like, why am I here? Like I've lost the plot as to why I did this. But again, like where you least expect it, you learn a level of resilience and adaptability that you just, you can use when you get into other situations in life that, you know, come along. And I, I, it was a very educational experience for me. One that I'm glad I did, but when I was done, I was broke and I was frustrated and I needed to get kind of into a place where I could sustain my own living and get a job. I had a friend who was living in LA, somebody, I did one summer abroad when I was in college in um, Dublin, Ireland. And so I'd lived with her then and she was living in LA. And so I moved up to LA and, and I moved in with her and just looked for a job. And I ended up at a company called Trust Company of the West. It's an asset management company. And my job was paying fee sharing and commissions for our fund managers and our brokers. And the person who'd had the job before me had built this database to track all the funds and track all the the payouts that would get paid to these fund managers. And so I showed up on the first day and, and my boss said to me, so we've got this database. We need you to run payments through it. And oh, by the way, this guy built it and he quit and nobody has any idea how it works. I was like, wow. great. <laughs> he said, so, so if anything breaks, we don't know what to do. So it'd be great if you could learn how to use that thing right? And I'd never interacted with a database at that level at that point. And it was unique to me to kind of take, I looked at it as like finance on steroids, right? You're taking what is the logic and math that you've learned how to do, what the sort of the the two-dimensional spreadsheets you've built and and adding multi-dimension to it and being able to compute and calculate a lot of data really fast at one time. I thought it was pretty cool, right? Like I love numbers and this was a way to accelerate analytics. I thought it was awesome, but I literally had no idea how to use it. So my boss says to me, you know, I'll send you to one of these all day things where you can learn how to use it. It was an access. You can learn how to use access. And I was like, well, that's not that helpful for me. Like what happens if I come back and I have a question and I don't know how to solve a problem. 
and I found a class that UCLA offered and it was uh, really near the office. They had a kind of extension school downtown LA and it was on programming for, for Visual Basic, which is the, the code language and access. And I said, why don't I take this? This is it's that way I've got a teacher. I go once a week and I start to learn how to, to build this thing. And I can go kind of back and forth um, with my questions and solve problems. And it just sort of snowballed, right? I ended up learning how to program in SQL and Oracle because it was like, well, if I'm going to take one class, why don't I take another class? And if I've taken two classes, well, they've got this degree program. I mean, I could just keep going. And it ultimately finished the, the degree program at UCLA and, and programming. And it was, it was fun. But it was always a way to accelerate problem solving. I sure. didn't enjoy the art of programming as much as I enjoyed what the programming did. It's a great skill because I, I learned how to design and build databases and what the kind of underlying fundamentals are of how you should create from scratch versus how you solve. And it's served me really well, especially as finance becomes a more digital endeavor as the world changes and as RPA comes along and all these other things come along, understanding how fundamentally you want systems to connect and to operate to be the most effective and efficient is a really helpful knowledge base to have in a world of finance. In, in but I'm a finance great... person. It's a super long answer to your question, but I'm a finance person. <laughs> and so, you know, it's such a great skill to have. And you know, what I find interesting is that you accomplished a lot at a young age and you were successful in a lot of different things in school and like this business program. You move from Boston to the opposite side of the country. And you do all these things at a young age. When you were younger, were you confident in all these things? Were like, were you confident in yourself? Like, did you have a high degree of confidence and like self-esteem? Or so some of you know, that, did yeah, you struggle comes, with that, right? It comes from a couple of places. So, and I would, I guess, credit both my parents in a lot of ways for that, right? I've always felt like, and I think my mother always gave me this idea, especially watching her, you can do anything. If you want to do it, you can do it. And she proved it. She could literally do anything. This tiny little woman from Arlington, Massachusetts, like she could do anything. And so I kind of believed I could do anything. If she could do anything, I could do anything. And that just was, it wasn't even a question. Like it wasn't something I pondered on because it was just, if you wanted it, you just went and did it and you figured it out. Like you, there was always a way. And that's the way my parents lived. So it's sort of how I expected life to be. I didn't expect anybody to hand me anything, but I expected that if I wanted something, I could make it happen. And it, it was less about, because yeah. I mean, did, I no, mean, it, I mean, as weird as it is, it was less about self-confidence and just more about logic. It was just this, anything's possible. Now my parents also always supported me. Right. So I, I there's no fear of intense failure because I can always go home. Never wanted to. I, I never had the, I, I mean, I wanted to move out of my parents' house fast, not because I didn't love living with them, but because I wanted to forge my own way. I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to have this sense of independence and accomplishment, always did. And I was ready to do that right out of college. I didn't want to go back home. It was sort of a sense of, I failed if I ended up going back home. But I always knew I could, right? I always knew if I had to go back home, home was always there. So you had a safety net that was certainly a comfort in terms of being willing to take risks or to, to jump out on your own. I also was never, like, so I was never great at sports. I was good at sports. My sister was great at sports. That was a hard thing for me because I always felt like I wasn't good enough at something. And that was the only thing I probably felt like I really just wasn't good enough at. And I remember at one point, it's, it's a pivotal thing for me. I, I made it onto a select side team for soccer and my sister had been playing on a different select side team for a long time. And my mother said to my dad, this is nice, but she's not really good enough for us to spend that kind of time because we've got to travel five days a week to her practice, which is an hour away. She's going to have games all over the place and her sister's got games somewhere different because they're on totally different teams. We can't invest this kind of time in her. And I took that super personally. Like it was a very hard thing for me to hear. And my father kind of said to her, I will then. And he forewent work and he for like he figured out a way to take me to every single practice, wow. every single game, every single thing. And, you know, I felt like I was worth it. Like he told me that that was okay, like that I was worth the effort. And as long as I tried, he'd try. And he didn't care if I won every game or I was the best kid on the field. I wanted to do it and he was going to support me in getting it done. 
And so those types of things, I think, put me in a position where no really wasn't in the vocabulary. Like it was not this, then that. You found a way. And my sure. father found a way for me in that instance. And my mother's found a way. So it's like neither one of them was the reason, but both of them, I think, contributed to that sense of, you know, one, just benevolence for things like gratitude and can-do attitude. Absolutely. No, and that and that's amazing. Those are such huge attributes. And like you said, just not having that fear and just going out there and doing things. I mean, sometimes I think back on my past and it's like, I was probably too naive sometimes to be fearful because I didn't even know what to be fearful about. I just did stuff yeah. and I just put myself out there. And it sounds like you did the same thing and that's allowed you to be successful to this day. Yeah. And it's sort of like, what's the worst that can happen, right? And the worst that could happen for me was go home, right? And I, I hated the idea of it. I didn't want to go home, but um, it was always there. Like, so yeah. why not try? So what, what do you think holds back people from achieving their potential? And whether that's male and female or females only, I mean, what holds people back from your perspective? Um, if I think about it from females, because I've spent quite a bit of time, you know, working with developing women in the workforce. I've been the only woman at a table 90% of the time I've been on a team or an executive team. A lot of it is just the belief in what they're capable of. You know, what can I be? What should I be? So to your point, that self-confidence. But it's not just about, am I confident in what I can do? I think it's about what does the world think I should be doing and sort of limiting their own horizons not believing in it, but also just never even thinking about it as them, never seeing themselves in that place. So never even striving to get there. So there's sort of a starting point that says, okay, like when your kids are really little, I want to be president, right? They believe they can get there. Over time, the world starts to tell them that's just too far to reach, right? For a lot of women, they just, they put self-limiters on them without even consciously doing it because the, they've decided that that's not realistic for themselves. Not about whether they can or they can't, but about it just doesn't fit, right? Sure. And I think that's just a misconception. I, I think a lot of people do it. I, how do you I, they break can't that? see themselves in those positions. Like if you're mentoring somebody, how do you break that, like that mental trap that it's so easy to fall into? For me, like one of the reasons I joined the company that I'm with now is my boss is a woman. It's the first time I've ever had a woman boss because I've moved up pretty quickly through through the financial ranks. I've been in a CFO role in various capacities for like seven years now, and it's always been men at the table. And I think there's a really big mental part of I have to see it to believe it. Mm -hmm. And so being that person for folks that says it's possible and being in that position where you can say it with confidence and they can see you doing it, it's possible. People then believe it's possible for them. If it's possible for her, it's possible for me. So it's, it's helping them understand or helping people understand that, that the possibility truly is there and getting them to stretch themselves into a space of what do you really think you can do? What do you really want to do without worrying about what the world expects of you or what you even expect of yourself. That's a great point. No, I absolutely agree. So let me ask you this, as a woman in a leadership role, what challenges have you faced or do you face? The unconscious bias is quite real. And like I said, I've worked with a lot of men who are incredible mentors, incredible champions of my career. I wouldn't be where I am without them. Yet they unconsciously do things all the time <laughs> that put me at a disadvantage. I and mean, it's not malicious, right? It's just the the belonging thing. And it's the little stuff. I think you sometimes hear about you go into a room to start a meeting and everybody's talking about the football game or the golf game or the, you know, that you don't get invited to do stuff with them where they actually do do business, although it appears social because it's perceived that you won't be good at it or won't like it. And sometimes they're right, quite frankly. You know, it's the, hey, we end a meeting and a follow-up meeting has got to get scheduled or somebody's got to go make copies and it's always you that gets sent out to do it every right. damn time right. um, without anybody even thinking about it. It's not purposeful. It's not malicious. It's just, it's an unconscious condition of the way that people are used to interacting and gender norms and trying to educate sort of my male colleagues on when they're doing it and how they can maybe think about things differently and, and getting into a position of enough trust and enough confidence with them to help open up that dialogue about the fact that it's even happening. But that is a day-to-day -day thing and you almost become less conscious of it just sort of the exclusionary or inclusionary, but it's usually exclusionary, just sort of dynamic of a team 
when you're not like the others and what that feels like. And that's probably the hardest thing in, in many ways to sort of deal with. I, I mean, I can come up with my list of really crappy examples of things that have been done to me that are just horrible. And I think many of us have faced them in terms of discrimination and, and certain issues of things I've been involved in. But they're outliers, you know, they're individual one-off circumstances that you deal with on a one-off basis and you try to figure out how to move forward on. It's that constant drumbeat of how do we change the way we think about each other and how we interact with each other and how do we create what's truly an inclusionary environment? You know, our company now has this bring your whole self to work and they really mean it. They genuinely do, but we're still very male dominated at the leadership level. And there's still that old boys club that's not intentional of conversation and and helping work with the leadership to, to engage on how do we shift that dynamic. Absolutely. So do you have any advice for women who may be striving for a position that's similar to yours? How do they get their place at the table and how do they have their voice heard and how do they rise up the ranks in leadership? Yeah. And I mean, it's no different than many people. And I always try to caution people on this. Like, don't focus so much on the difference first, focus on the work first. (laughs) So if you're not great at what you do, you will struggle. Be great at what you do. And being great at what you do will get you a voice at a, at a table. It will give you the opportunity to, to speak because you have to contribute meaningfully to the company's success. You have to have enough credibility with the leadership to suggest that you should be in a position to guide that company. And so don't lose sight of that fact first, because that fact first is what matters most, is you must be great at what you do, at what what you bring to the table for value to the organization. It has to be first. You then can go from there and do just about anything and finding that dynamic of who to talk to and how to engage and how to guide and support companies as they change and start to think about what changing the leadership team and the look of the leadership team looks like. You know, I've always been a believer that you can draw correlation between financial performance and the company's diversity, that generally more diverse companies will do better. And you can't do it in a completely linear way. Like as a finance person, everybody likes things to be causally linked and precision. And, you know, you can't, but you can, if you just draw the statistics and you pull all of the pieces, more minds at the table, make better decisions and better results. More diversity drives better performance. Yeah, I can agree more. So you've been in a CFO role, you've been in financial leadership roles. When you hear the term strategic financial leadership, what, what does that mean to you? I mean, for me, strategy is always forward looking. And, it, and when you say strategy, it's not just like, okay, what am I going to do this year? It's about who do I want to be when I grow up, right? It's like, it's about what's possible. And strategic financial leadership is sort of extending the boundaries of what's possible for this organization, and then trying to draw a correlation between where we are and how we get there, right? So it's seeing the strategy and then leading a path to get to it pushing yourself to a place that's uncomfortable. You know, what feels too far. If it feels a little too far, you're probably starting to get there. You're probably starting to get the point. If it feels a little unrealistic, then that's probably where you want to go, right? So it's pushing yourself out of that comfort zone and constantly evolving as an organization and staying relevant, especially now, right? Like right now, it's like talk about needing to be nimble and dynamic and being able to adjust to change for sure. Absolutely. When it comes to the CFO, you know, what, what's the CFO's role in strategy? I mean, typically the CEO owns always, strategy, right? But yeah, it, and it's been different in the different companies that I'm in, right? So in my last company, strategy was actually owned by the group CFO. Um, so we were very pivotal in guiding the strategic planning process and strategic leadership. So finance oddly had the, the function of, of having strategy we, and we didn't have a functional COO, which is probably why we became the, the leaders of strategy. Our CFO probably wore both hats. So I'm very accustomed to driving that strategic process as a finance leader in my last role. It's more traditional in the company I'm in now where it's more of a, a business partnering role. But, you know, all companies, that's sort of the joy of being in finance, right? If you don't have the money, you, you can't succeed, right? We, the bottom line guides almost everything. So there's no strategy discussion that doesn't involve the finance leader. Um, <laughs> right. Because if it doesn't make money, we're not doing it. So you become a real pivotal part of, of integrating into that team and trying to help translate vision into financial results. 
Yeah, and I absolutely agree. Well, let me shift gears here for a minute and go back to a previous comment that you made. You know, you said that you've always been about learning and growth, and I think that's awesome. Education is so important and self-development is so critical. But how do you do that? Like, how do you keep up on blockchain and AI and analytics and all these things like new software that is constantly being launched? How do you keep up on that while trying to be strategic and while trying to manage the the day-to-day demands on your time? So I will readily admit, like, and I, I've got leaders in the company and, and I have a new boss that actually started recently who are, you know, prolific readers, right? They're constantly in the New York Times or they've constantly got a book on Bitcoin or, or what have you and all of their spare time reading about business. I will admit I'm not that person. <laughs> I am not the person who's like constantly in an academic book. I am the person who is constantly engaged with other people. I get tremendous knowledge and energy from other people. So there's a piece that's just, I am always involved in some academic endeavor. I I believe continuous improvement is critical. And I also believe that staying outside of your comfort zone keeps you from becoming blind to things that are happening in your organization due to kind of complacency and comfort. So I'll always be in some type of, you know, school program or, you know, right now I belong to an organization called Chief where we have a lot of ongoing learnings that that I can engage in on a regular basis that fit my schedule that are, you know, either speakers or classes or I will always be doing those things. I like doing those things with other humans. I'm not always face down in a book. So I will join lots of those types of organizations whenever I can. Even I, you know, I, I've chaired uh, boards for nonprofits and other things and just staying outside of your sphere allows you to learn new and interesting things from people all the time, which I love, right? You, you don't just get the perspective of this academic endeavor of reading a book, but like I'll spend time with our CEO at our next event and just chat about what's he reading. You know, what's he thinking about? What's our CFO doing? What's he thinking about? And then what is this other woman who's working in marketing that's in my chief organization that I happen to get to see for, you know, one of our core meetings and get to learn about what's keeping them up at night? And really, then I can pick and choose topics from a lot of those conversations to say, oh, maybe I should worry about that and go directedly look into something. It's much more ad hoc and continuous and less a oh, I must do X amount of this on this day or that on that day. It, it, it makes it not feel like work when it's like that. It, it feels like life and it just sure. feels natural. Yeah. And that, that human connection, there's, there's so much to learn from other people, and especially in those interactions. And it reminds me of a time when I was sitting in an executive meeting and the company was going through a really tough time and they were making some cuts. And I remember the CEO standing up at the whiteboard and he wrote on the, the board, people and then profit. And then he went around and he asked the executive team to cast their vote. What was more important? You could only choose one, people or profit. And I thought it was so interesting because you know there's the argument where, well, if you don't have the people, you don't earn a profit. And then there's the case, if you don't earn the profit, you don't have the people. So how do you, how do you reconcile that? And is it an either or? And what do you think about that? Had to be either or it's people. <laughs> Just and I and it's interesting because I've seen very different dynamics on different leadership teams in this regard where some see human capital as just that. They refer to it as human capital in the boardroom and that it's an asset that the company needs, but it's a fungible asset like a, a printer or a PC, right? I don't see it that way, right? The the value a human can bring is somewhat infinite and you can't define what one human's interaction might bring to your company in such a binary way as do I have enough of them or not, right? They're not interchangeable. They aren't just plugging things into to sockets, right? They're what brings the next new innovation. They're what guides and leads on how we're going to do things that you've never thought of. You need people. You need the brains that those people bring if you're going to be long-term, double-digit growing successful company. Um, It's a big part of why I moved to the company I'm in because they get that and that they fundamentally value their humans in a way that enables those people to bring their best selves. And it also enables those people to want to stretch, to want to try, think, learn, do. Um, and it's just so incredible to be engaged with groups of people that are, that are in that space, that are in that, I feel so safe, supported, and secure, and so excited about what I'm doing 
that what I can define and develop is almost infinite. That's the kind of thing you want to build in your in your company. And that if you lose that, that's when you start losing the growth and you start losing the profit and the capacity to enhance that profit when you lose that passion. And yeah. so for me, it's always people. Yeah. And, and I agree. I mean, there's so much value there and there's so much untapped potential out there in people. And I think it's such a great perspective. What if somebody feels stuck? You know, what if they're just like, oh my gosh, my career is going nowhere. Maybe they're in a controller role and they're just like, how do I get out of the day-to-day compliance and transactional side of the business? And how do I become more in the leadership, in a leadership role of the business and, and really making decisions and driving the company forward? What advice would you give to them for getting make unstuck? Yeah, I'm a planner, right? So make a plan. If you don't know where you want to be or what that looks like, you don't know how to get there, right? So where do you want to be? And what does that look like? And then what are the steps you could take to get there? Right? Like uh, now, experience very good at this. And I have a mentor that's been like assigned to me, but she's amazing. And she's not my boss. She's somebody outside of my space. And I'm just super fortunate that the company is really thoughtful about those things. And if your company is not find someone, right? Like I was a finance person as a CFO and I was very stuck in that finance box. I was FP&A and then I became a CFO. And as a CFO, I want to be able to make good decisions that are not just financially minded. I want to partner with the CEO and see beyond the numbers mm-hmm. and be thoughtful about why certain choices are better than others, even if the numbers aren't always perfect. And that understand what value the customer brings to the table because the customer is king, right? And I just wasn't really great at that stuff. I didn't have a lot of experience in it. I, I hadn't really left the finance analytics. I'd been an analyst and been raised up as an analyst. And so I partnered with our head of government relations, like so far out of my comfort zone, right? Like you want to go out for a drink, let's chat, right? Just yeah. re- I just reached out to the guy, right? And so then we ended up doing like, I would go on a couple of road shows with him a year. And then like, you know, the company ended up getting me an executive coach for certain things. Like just go ask for it. Most people want to help. Most people really are engaged with other people and they want to be a part of other people's success. 90% of the people are going to say yes. Like just make a plan, reach out. So are you a goal oriented person? Like do you write down goals? Like do you have a goal book that you use or is it just more in your head? Yeah, it's more organic than that. It's less about I have to do this. It's more about what could I be better at? And as I start to get better at those things, what could I do next? I mean, most of my career growth has happened with the exception of this last move, which was quite methodical for me because moving companies after being at one for 17 years was a real thoughtful endeavor for me. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my promotional opportunities have come without my asking and when I least expected it. And quite frankly, when I didn't feel quite ready for it, which was great, right? So I was always being stretched, always being pushed always being challenged and put into difficult situations. And that's where you find your most dynamic growth and your, your most capacity to change and learn and develop and be better. And so that fortunately happened for me for a long time in my career. And when it stopped happening, I started making it happen. Said, yeah. Okay. If I'm, if I'm stuck here, if that didn't happen on its own, then wh- what's next? And I'm not so rigid about what next looks like. I'm more about, okay, it's time to not do this. What are the options? And you, and you start to put yourself out there, learn new things, and then learn about what might work best for you to be doing next. Because I, I could have done four or five different jobs when I took this job. And I picked this one for a bunch of reasons. But there were multiple paths in front of me and all of them very good, right? So I was less like, oh, must go here next. I think you really have to be flexible about what next is because the world changes on a daily basis, life changes, and you just need to keep moving forward and upward and in a trajectory that gets you where you want to go without being so concerned about it has to be that thing. Well, I, I think that's so key what you said about asking. I mean, so many people, they're afraid to ask and you know, oftentimes, which is crazy, by the way, it is crazy. And because when (laughs) we ask for things, oftentimes people, to your point, they want to help us. And a lot of the things we ask for, we actually get. And it's such a shame that so often, you know, people don't ask for things and they, they never receive. When I came back to to Massachusetts or Rhode Island, I, um, I interviewed for a couple companies. I ended up at uh, what was then G tech as an analyst in uh, their technology department. 
And there was this guy who ran our project's work and that project's work, like I just thought was the coolest thing ever, right? He was a director. I was an analyst. I made it to manager in a year, but he's sitting in this director. It was like two levels above mine. And it was like my dream job. I wanted this job so bad, but it was way like, you know, years down the road as far as I could see it. He decided to make a life change and leave the company. And I went to my boss and I said to him, I know it's not the right time. I know that I'm, you know, too junior for this. There's a senior manager ahead of me that's a logical candidate or whatever, but I need you to know I want that job. That's a dream job for me. And he said, then apply for it. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, well, yeah, but I don't want to, you know, he's like, don't be stupid. If you want people to know that that's what you want, apply for it. And then everybody will know that's what you want. And then they will help you get there. Oddly enough, what had happened is I'd done a couple projects along the way. And I ended up getting the job like when I applied for it. I was more shocked than anybody. But it, it was this sort of moment of like, all I did was say to my boss who I trusted and really connected with, like, I just feel like you need to know what my career goals are. And then he said, well, then let me get you there. And, you know, we just, all you got to do is ask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. S- such simple advice, but advice that's often not taken so that that's great. So let me ask you this. You've, you've been very successful in your career. Is there something else that you'd like to accomplish? And what gets you excited about the future? My life shifted quite a bit as it's gone through its twists and turns. You know, I've been in CFO role for a while. When I became CFO, I have two kids now, right? So when you have kids, life changes quite a bit as well. My daughter, when she was two and before I became CFO, was diagnosed with cancer. And she went through two and a half years of chemotherapy. I, I would say it was this sort of like huge shift in who I am as a human, how I see the world, what I do in life. And, you know, two and a half years of weekly chemo with a two-year-old while becoming CFO one year into treatment, um, while moving across the country as soon as her last surgery was done. Um, I, I started, started running a lot, but I, I also gained this sense of sort of calm and confidence about life, mostly because I kind of realized that all these things that I got so worried about really weren't as important as I thought they were, right? When you think your child's going to die, you start to kind of say, well, wait a minute, what am I spending all this time doing this for? for?" And you really recenter your world on a different set of priorities and a different focus area. And, And I I became much more decisive and much more balanced, I think, in the way I think about my own health and my family and my life. And, and so I started to, to run. And as an athlete, I'd always, you know, chase the ball as a kid, but I really loathed the act of just plain old running. <laughs> I was like, who wants to do this nonsense? But I, I started and I kept it because it really, I found it, it created a center for me and it created um, mental clarity and focus and lots of things for me. And so Two years ago, I ran what I say, I always say this out loud and it makes me think I have to do it again. I ran my first 100 mile race. Wow. Um, I always say like, when I say my first, it it implies that there will be a second, (laughs) (laughs) which is a daunting prospect for me in my head at the moment, given where I'm at with running. I love what it brings on sort of a couple levels, right? So I, I love the sense of community and and the connection to outdoors and the you know mental clarity and all of these things that come from running. I started ultra running 2 years ago. That tapped into a resilience that I think I probably developed when my daughter got sick, but it's this constant drumbeat of you can do anything. I don't sure. care what your mind thinks you can or can't do. You can. Right? You just you can. I don't care what hurts. I don't care what you think is happening <laughs> like it's, it's such a mind over matter situation when you run that far to train your brain to take control of your body. Pushing those boundaries is just an interesting and exciting thing for me. So maybe someday, hopefully not in the far too distant future, I'll do my second 100 mile race and, and who knows what next. <laughs> you are my inspiration. I did my first like mini ultra, I guess you call it, as a 50K, so like 31 miles. I did that um, back in Chattanooga through the forest and that was cool. I do want to do a hundred mile. Good spot. Um, But I agree. I mean, running has saved my life because when I've had to go through really tough things, I mean, I can't imagine what you went through with your daughter because I I ran like every day. And and my my challenges definitely weren't to that extreme. Um, But I know running, like getting out there and 
you know, just clearing your mind and getting your blood flowing and the endorphins going really helped me get through really challenging yeah. things. So it's interesting that you share that perspective. I joined. Uh, so what happened was like a friend at work had a race that they wanted to register for. They needed 10 runners and they had nine. And they're like, you're an athlete. Come do this race. But it was 10 miles, which to me, 10 miles might have might as well have been forever at the time. And I was like, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> they're like, the company will fund us. We'll train you. It'll be fine. Okay, great. So I'm type A, right? Give me the training plan. Da, 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 da. Go do the race. It was like the bucket list checkoff. I got a good time. Was happy with my finish. It was Friday night. Monday morning is when my daughter was diagnosed. Two days wow. after that race. So I thought I was done running on Friday. Like literally done. <laughs> and then... Mm -hmm. The Monday came in and after two weeks in the hospital and she was inpatient for a month or so, and I never left her room barely at all. I started to feel really run down and sick and, and the doctor's like, you got to get outside um, and you got to go for coffee or something. I'm like, who walks away from their two-year-old and goes and has a cup of coffee? Like, well, she's fighting for her life, right? Like, I can't do this. And so I called my friend who trained me for the race and I said, let's go for a run. And we ran, I think, eight miles that day. I think I cried the entire time. Like it just, everything that had happened from the moment I'd walked into that ER to the moment that I went on that run was just stuck inside of me. All of it. I had just, I went into fixer. I'm the mother, I'm the protector, I'm going to fix this. And I I'd let it all out on eight miles of the road. And it was like, okay, now I can come back better for her because I'm not carrying this garbage with me. That just sort of is what running does for me. And endurance running and long distance running like I did the 50K this spring in um, Avalon. It's called the Avalon 50K. If you ever decide you want to do it, you run around Catalina Island. Oh. It is stunning. It's that one of the most amazing. beautiful races I've ever done. And you get up on this rise after climbing all morning to the sunrise. And like, there's just nothing better. Just nothing. It's just such a cathartic experience to be a part of that sort of primal thing. And I love it. But yeah, I 50 Ks have become a bit of my sweet spot. So I've done, I don't know, I don't even know how many of them, maybe 15. I, I have no idea. In the past wow. like three or four years. So I do a lot of 50 Ks. I did a marathon last Saturday, just because. Like <laughs> just it. because no big deal. Yeah. Just, you know, just busted that out. Well, that's great. You're, I mean, you're definitely an inspiration. And I really enjoyed talking with you, catching up with you. And you know, I just love Thank your you. moxie and your fortitude and your drive. And I think you're such a great example for so many people out there that want to do hard things in life. And, you know, just you, you provide a lot of great advice and insights about just putting yourself out there and asking for what you want and just working hard to achieve it. So thank you. I just for believe people can literally do anything. I mean, I was out there with my, my friend. This was the second time she'd ever run a marathon last night. I'm like, let's just go run a marathon. And at about 18 miles, she's like, I can't, my feet hurt. I'm like they don't. And you can. <laughs> you know? so just keep going you can do it no you're, you can I mean, you're, and she finished and she was like i can i'm like you can then they, and they look at you like thank you for that i'm like i didn't do a damn thing like i just stood next to you like you did it yeah, yeah we could do so much more than we actually think we can and so you're proof of that so thank you so much for being Anytime. on today's uh, episode i appreciate happy it happy to Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best.